This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The COVID-19 vaccine rollout in Ontario focused this week on an increase in the risk of extremely rare blood clots associated with the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. On Tuesday, Chief Medical Officer Dr. David Williams announced a plan to pause first doses of AstraZeneca vaccine as incidents of a blood clot known as VITT had increased from 1 in 100,000 to 1 in 60,000. At the same time, Dr. Williams and science advisors, including Dr. Dirk Heyer, did not rule out giving second doses of AZ shots to people who received it the first time, since the risk of this blood clot in second-dose recipients drops to one in a million. Since that announcement, we've learned that Canada has received an additional 655,000 doses of AstraZeneca vaccine, which appears headed to provinces that want to use it for second doses. About 2 million Canadians, including nearly 900,000 Ontario residents, have received a first dose of the AZ vaccine. So where does this decision leave them, which, by the way, includes yours truly, along with a number of my Zoomer media colleagues, including Libby Snymer, Eva D., and Ziggy Lawrence? Libby was joined by two of the Ontario experts on Wednesday, Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the Science Advisory Table, and Dr. Dirk Heyer, Ontario's Chief Coroner and Coordinator of the Provincial COVID-19 Outbreak Response. When we look at vaccines, we look at the, the clinical data, which is the studies that uh, they did to get approval. Then you look at the real-world evidence. And what we've seen from AstraZeneca, it is a significantly effective vaccine that reduces the chance of getting ill and most significantly getting seriously ill, hospitalized, or dying. And and we've seen the results of AstraZeneca by looking at the UK. Look at their case numbers now. Look at how successful it's been there. Now, having said that, there's been some tragic circumstances with the adverse effects, and that's part of what we do with vaccines is we monitor, we surveil, we, we check and see how things are going. And when there's particular issues, we need to raise those and we need to make decisions about the ongoing use of a vaccine for certain certain situations. And that's what that's what's been done. When we heard from NASI the last time, I mean, they really did make it sound that the Pfizer, Moderna are better vaccines. What they were, I think, trying to say was, when you have a decision to make, you look at a risk of something, you look at the risk of the COVID, you compare that at your granular individual level and decide what's your benefit individually compared to your risk individually, and then make your decisions, knowing that there are other vaccines that may be coming forward. That's the way that I listen to them. And it becomes an individual thing, which is far more important for a complete discussion and anything that we do individually, we should be thinking about all of these things. But then what I heard was it was translated out 
uh, more more broadly to, to applying across population, and that might have been a challenge. Uh, Dr. Heyer, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? The challenges that every fa- everyone faces on a day-to-day basis with the pandemic and, and all of the measures that come in place. And then what I'm so pleased with and continue to be pleased with is the number of people that are going to get the vaccine to provide this bar- broader population protection that will help us all move forward together to be uh, able to return to a life that's different than we have right now. So thanks, and thanks for your interest. For more on this, let's bring in Dr. Peter Uni, the Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. So you were happy when the province paused, AstraZeneca, why? Yes, I was. You know, science is evolving, and we now understand much better what these uh, rare blood clots are all about. And the first thing which is important to understand is, well, perhaps four weeks ago, we uh, assumed that the frequency would be roughly one in 250,000 shots, first shots. Uh, we now understand this is more like one in 50,000 first drops. That's point number one that changes the picture. Point number two is the supply chain has held and we now have enough Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to uh, continue vaccination of everybody, which is great news. And point number three is that unlike a few weeks ago, uh, the pandemic is not completely out of control anymore. We still need to bring the numbers down much more, but we're on the right track. This all changes the situation, given everything also that we know that if you have this very rare events, that it's this is not a walk in the park, it's very severe, it made absolute sense to pause and now just to, uh, to continue with the first shots with Pfizer and Moderna. What would you like to leave us with on this? I think it is the absolutely right thing what happened here in the province. The system is working. Sometimes the messaging was not optimal, but we really should be confident. You know, we met with, uh, with Dr. Williams last Friday on Tuesday, the province already decided it is all on track right now regarding safety. And uh, we should be very pleased that we have enough, you know, mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and from Moderna, thanks to the Fed. So when we look just into, the, into what's happening right now, we're on a good track and we should be optimistic. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the Science Advisory Table, and Dr. Dirk Heyer, Ontario's Chief Coroner and Coordinator of the Provincial COVID-19 Outbreak Response. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's been months since we first heard about rapid COVID-19 tests. We later learned that the federal Trudeau Liberals acquired them and sent them to the provinces, but were not initially distributed. Now, after months, these rapid tests will be going to workplaces around Ontario. Rocco Rossi is president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, which is credited in part for making this happen. The provincial government, in a sense, really uh, made it happen by removing the final obstacle that was keeping small and medium-sized businesses, at least, from really participating in this, and that is that up until recently, it was required that you have medical supervision as you're administering these tests. But as my uh, colleague Ian McLean from the Kitchener-Waterloo uh, Chamber of Commerce puts it, and that's where we first uh, piloted along with Cambridge, you know, a well-trained basset hound can take this test. It is, it is dead simple. 
Uh, yes, it's a nasal swab, but it's not the sort of brain tickler. You uh, you swab your own nasal nasal cavities. You put then the uh, the swab into uh, into a little bit of uh, uh, of liquid, and and within 15 minutes, uh, you get a positive or negative result. And if you get a positive result, you uh, clearly don't go into uh, don't go into work that day. You arrange for a PCR test, you self-isolate, and we stop uh, the chain of transmission with asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people. When did you actually receive this, and how was the decision made to distribute it through your organization? About a month and a half ago, uh, we started to pilot in uh, the Waterloo region with the Kitchener-Waterloo, because we the chambers had been pushing hard, as had our uh, friends at Communitech, the incubator there in the Waterloo region. So they said, okay, um, you guys you guys try it out. Let's see small, medium-sized businesses. So businesses under 150 employees and how, how they do. And very quickly, in two weeks, we had over 1,500 businesses order uh, the tests, which, as you point out, the federal government bought almost 50 million of these several months ago. Some have been being used by large uh, uh, large corporations and uh, long-term help, but by removing that final obstacle, it now made it easy for uh, small, medium-sized businesses to use them. Uh, as a business, you, you order two-week supply, you commit to um, testing your employees twice a week, and then uh, on an anonymous basis, you tell us, okay, you had 100 tests, uh, 99 were negative, one positive, anonymous basis. And then you can put in your second order. You go, you pick them up. They're free for uh, really, as they're long free. As this lasts. Yes. Have you been deluged with, with people who want these tests? How's it going? Huge, huge uh, uh, demand just to give you a, the day that, uh, last week that we had the um, uh, the press release out, um, literally even before the offices opened at the um, Kingston Chamber of Commerce, we had over 100 orders. Uh, Milton has had to reorder already because what it anticipated as the demand uh, was far under what it's uh, what it's receiving. And and similarly, similar reaction across the province because think about it, Libby. You know, your show is called Fight Back, and this is about fighting back against COVID, about having, rather than just being victims, here's a very positive thing beyond physical distancing and masking and barriers, where we can take an additional step to reduce the risk. We know that the risk is never zero until we have mass vaccination and herd immunity, but uh, it gives us that additional step forward to keep as much of the economy open as possible and to open more of the economy as safely as possible. Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, an update from Peel's Medical Officer of Health as the stay-at-home order continues and the COVID vaccination rate climbs. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Residents of both Toronto and Peel Region have been in some sort of pandemic-related lockdown since November 23rd. November 23rd, that was nearly six months ago. On Thursday, Premier Doug Ford announced the stay-at-home and outdoor activities ban would continue at least until June 2nd because of two high COVID case counts and hospitalizations. Dr. Lawrence Lowe is Peel Region's Medical Officer of Health and has become a trusted voice during the pandemic. He joined Libby soon after the Premier's Thursday announcement. Well, you know, I think uh, certainly we are starting to see promising trends in our community, but we've seen what happens when you in- uh, increase uh, contact and interactions too quickly. Uh, certainly that led to uh, our, our third resurgence here in Peel, uh, which did come a couple weeks later than the rest of the province, which saw a significant resurgence after uh, gradual reopening in mid-February. Uh, so I think it uh, it's helpful because our cases are coming down, but they're still higher than the peak when we went into the stay-at-home order. Our hospitals haven't quite cleared out yet. And while our vaccination campaign is continuing, we're not quite getting to the point yet. We're, we're almost there of 75% first dose coverage, which is which is so vital as a first milestone. One of the issues that's ongoing in Peel is that there are so many essential workers that a stay-at-home order doesn't really make a difference. Uh, does that do, does that apply this time as well? Uh, well, I think the stay-at-home order helps to reduce discretionary contacts, right? And I think the reality is is that uh, you know there are lots of uh, people who can't work from home in the region of Peel. Uh, and outside of that, though, what we don't want is for uh, those individuals to be increasing even more their potential contacts by, you know, say, indoor dining or going to a gym or whatever the case might be. So the stay-at-home order is very helpful for helping to blanket reduce uh, an overall number of contacts. Uh, but certainly, Peel, we've had a real focus on uh, our, you know, our workforce that is unable to work from home. Uh, and we've, uh, you know, instituted our specific Section 22 order, which now allows us to expedite clo- expedite closure of workplace. That's an outbreak with more than five cases that were acquired on site, as well as mobile uh, vaccination program expansion, which is really targeted. Uh, those workers who can't work from home wouldn't be able to access vaccination any other way. So for the last two weeks, the province has diverted half of the province's supply to hard-hit areas. Uh, I'm unclear about whether that's going to continue. So are you still going to get those uh, additional doses, or does that end? So at this point in time, we haven't received any indication as to uh, whether uh, the uh, over-allocation of supply to regions such as Peel or Toronto is going to continue. Uh, however, we do know, uh, at least with the doses that we have received, uh, it has allowed us to really increase our offering and our plans. We now have uh, six different workplace clinics that were built on top of the three original ones that we had started and continue to get into more. Uh, we're bringing on board uh, a, a giant regional hub, which is being sponsored by Bruce Power, uh, to add even more capacity starting next week. Um, and we also have increased hours, staffing, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, changed our operation of our clinics to increase uh, clinic throughput, and also are launching an overnight uh, 32-hour vaccine marathon this weekend uh, to try to get 7,500 people their first dose within an initial clinic. So uh, we, we're steadily vaccinating here in the region of Peel. We're grateful for the allocation from the province, and uh, certainly with more, we can do more. 
when do you think we'll kind of be past this phase? Well, first and Peel, it's really three things we're looking at. I mean, cases are the uh, initial uh, thing, and that's why we follow them. Uh, they are starting to come down, and we do need to maintain the course and uh, make sure we're living in context to get this third wave down altogether. Uh, we need to keep an eye on the hospitals because ultimately that's the escape valve because out of all the cases, uh, some individuals will uh, get sick and require hospitalization. Some will require intensive care. And right now our hospitals have not yet stabilized their picture. They still have surgeries canceled, patient transfers occurring. So that's going to need a couple of weeks to make sure that we're starting to rebuild our capacity uh, there. And then, of course, vaccination. So we are getting closer and closer to 75% first dose coverage. We then need to push through to 75% first dose, 20% second dose coverage, which is where the UK is, uh, where they're having a fairly extensive reopening. And then from then on, really try to get to 75% two-dose coverage to have that you know, really significant protection to interrupt transmission, hopefully, in our community. Dr. Lawrence Lowe in conversation with Libby Zneimer on Thursday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The federal liberals call it a threat to Canada's energy security. But Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has not backed off her demand that Enbridge has to shut down its Line 5, which runs through her state. Whitmer's deadline for the shutdown was on Wednesday, but a statement from Enbridge says the company won't comply unless ordered to do so by a judge. Without this pipeline, which re-enters Canada at Sarnia, Ontario, Canada would be about 45 percent short of the crude oil it requires. Line 5 supply is used in part to produce gasoline and diesel for Ontario. It's also a critical source of petroleum for the Line 9 pipeline that runs to Quebec and provides 40 to 50 percent of the crude oil that is used by Quebec refineries to make gasoline and other fuels. To find out what all this means for Canadians, Libby was joined by Liberal strategist Bob Richardson of National Public Relations, Federal Green Party leader Annami Paul, and Federal Conservative Foreign Affairs critic Michael Chong, who represents the Ontario riding of Wellington-Halton Hills. We've been calling on the Prime Minister to pick up the phone and call President Biden uh, and ask him to invoke the 1977 Transit Pipelines Treaty to ensure that this vital piece of infrastructure remains open. Um, And we think this is a serious enough matter that a phone call between the Canadian Prime Minister and the American President is necessary and needs to happen. The governor, Gretchen Whitmer, says that uh, the pipeline is is an accident waiting to happen and a bad one. Well, our view is that this pipeline has operated safely for decades. It's been operating since 19, the early 1950s and has not had a leak into water during that entire time. Um, so we think that her assessment is wrong and that the pipeline should remain open. As you pointed out, uh, half a million barrels of oil and other crude liquids flow through this pipeline. It it supplies about half of Ontario's oil and gas and two-thirds of Quebec's and much of the jet fuel for Pearson International Airport. Uh, We cannot afford to have this pipeline shut down. It would be an economic disaster if that were to happen. Now, we've heard about the consequences, and despite that, Green Party leader Annami Paul is in favor of the shutdown, and she joins me now. So what is your view of this? 
Well, uh, what we have said is that we support Governor Whitmer's decision, uh, not just her decision, but also the calls from Indigenous um, nations on both sides of the border uh, to close down Line 5. Uh, there's no reason for us to doubt uh, the, the credibility of the data that she's relying on that tells her that this is a disaster that's waiting to happen and that the consequences would be catastrophic. So we respect that. And now this, the, the issue for Canada is how do we prepare for what Governor Whitmer is clearly determined to do? What about the consequences? This would cause severe shortage in Ontario and Quebec. What do you say to that? Uh, I'm really disappointed that given that we've had over two and a half years to plan for this, that we haven't put any contingency plans in place. So, you know, this is the time for us to do what we should have done years ago, which is to talk about our plan B and to make sure that if this does in fact happen, that um, we have the energy supply we need and we protect uh, as many jobs as we can. Let's now bring in Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. What's the politics of this? Well, I think the both opposition parties are saying what they what they need to say, but I think the facts in this one are that uh, the federal government has been active on this file. They've filed an a- amicus brief in the, in the U.S. federal court. They've discussed this at the highest levels of the U.S. government, including with President Biden. They've had discussions with the governor. They've encouraged business leaders to support Line Five and put uh, heat on. Uh, on, on Michigan and the governor. Uh, most of the people who have done an analysis of the, the approach they've taken legally think it's smart and, and will result in this issue ending up in federal court, which is where we want it to. So I would say overall, I think the federal government has done the right thing. Um, uh, are, are these things ever perfect? No, it's kind of a, it's, this one is kind of messy. Uh, but, you know, it's funny uh, conservative commentators in the National Post and another place, somebody like La- La- Lauren Gunter, um, are complaining that uh, the federal government has stood up for Line 5 but didn't stand up enough for Keystone XL. And then you have Michael Chong saying, oh, they're not standing up for, uh, for Line 5. So which one is it? These guys sort of need to get their act together. Liberal strategist Bob Richardson of National Public Relations, Federal Green Party leader Enemy Paul, and Federal Conservative Foreign Affairs critic Michael Chong. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Dan in Elwood phoned to talk about the controversial Line 5 Enbridge pipeline which is under threat of being shut down by Michigan's governor. Yeah, he said this pipeline's been operating safely for 70 years, but I understand it was built with an expected 50-year lifetime. Now, uh, apparently Enbridge is is going to build a tunnel under the streets of Mackinac where the big danger is, but they're having difficulty getting the permits. And, uh, yeah, we need to get... uh, The Prime Minister definitely needs to talk to Biden 
But he also needs to get Biden to uh, pressure them to get these permits uh, for that tunnel pushed through as quick as possible because it is a serious danger. I mean, we need the oil. There's no doubt about it. We need this oil. We need this line running. But we need to get it as safe as possible, too. And that means get that tunnel under the Straits of Mackinac approved and built. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lucy, who phoned about the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine and how frustrating it is to hear that it's a moving target. You read so much about this, and it's like a moving target. You know, first the National Post, you know, I read it that, you know, the risk could be as high as 1 in 26,000. But, you know, it's or 1 in 55,000. You know, then they say it's, you know, the Nazi says it's the preferred. And then they say, no, 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 we made a mistake. No, let's clarify that. Then they say Health Canada says, well, the risk, you know, you have to watch out for symptoms 4 to 20 days. Now it's like 4 to 28 days. Um, and if they had 12 cases in Canada, then three were fatal. That's 30%. And one of those 12, you know, not fatal, but the guy apparently is, you know, has a really, really debilitating stroke. There's a chance that, you know, if I get this, you know, I will die or have a debilitating stroke. I'm not sure if I want it anymore. To reassure Lucy and others like her, we are awaiting a decision by the Ford Tories on how people who got AstraZeneca as their first shot will be able to access a second shot. Many experts agree the risk of developing an extremely rare blood clot with a second shot of AZ is about one in a million. And those who got AZ first should also get it second. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.